Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi. How'd you know it was me? I have caller ID. Oh, what's it say? With the trip. It does? I have an unpublished phone, the idiot. The great story here is this vast right-wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband since the day he announced for president. May of 91, Bill Clinton harassed me on the job and then basically told me, let's keep this between ourselves. We had no sexual relationship with this young woman. There is not a sexual relationship. That is accurate. Hello and welcome to Still Watching, uh, the Vanity Fair podcast that is now hosted by me. I'm Katie Rich. I'm the awards and audio editor of Vanity Fair, and I'm here with uh, Richard Lawson, uh, chief critic of Vanity Fair. Um, we are here picking up the pieces left behind by <laughs> Joanna Robinson, who we love and adore, and as you know, is no longer with us. Um, but we are really excited. She's alive. To- she's she's <laughs> no longer with us at Vanity Fair, alive and well in the world. Um, and moving on to very exciting things. Um, but we're going to keep still watching going, especially because we're in the middle of this really fascinating season on this show, on this show, American Crime Story Impeachment. Um, and we're here to talk about the fourth episode, The Telephone Hour. Um, I took a note that Joanna always sets up the concept of the show, so I'll do my best. Basically, every season we pick a TV series that we want to talk about in great detail. And American Crime Story Impeachment felt like an automatic fit for us at Vanity Fair. It is full of recent history. It is about fascinating people, many of whom are still alive, including our Vanity Fair colleague, Monica Lewinsky, who is at the center of this story. Um, And now with episode four, we're kind of getting to where this story about Monica Lewinsky at Linda Tripp meets up with the public record. Which I think is uh, it's getting kind of juicy, right? Yeah, I mean this. Yeah, this episode feels like the prelude to a horror movie. You know, it's like <laughs> like everything is k- setting into place for like the bad thing to happen. Um, I mean, bad things have already happened, obviously. But um, yeah, this is I think the episode where um, the momentum kind of picks up because a lot of the previous episodes have been sort of table setting for what's to come. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And sort of like getting a hint at what comes up. And then, you know, in this episode, we meet Vernon Jordan, who is a very major uh, player in the impeachment saga. And you start hearing the Linda Tripp tapes, which uh, we'll get into later. 
Uh, also later in the interview, uh, Richard will have an interview with Margot Martindale, who plays Lucianne Goldberg, who's really the person who um, made the Linda Tripp tapes exist, I guess, who isn't Linda Tripp. Um, but first, I wanted to dive into our listener emails. Uh, you can continue emailing us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. I am now reading your emails, and I've been really uh, delighted to see them, including many lovely farewell messages for Joanna, which I have forwarded on to her, and I'm sure she is happy to see. Uh, But I wanted to read uh, a nice long one we got from Susan, um, who, you know, we asked people to chime in about their memories of this whole period in time. Uh, And she wrote in to us uh, (laughs) that she, like, did some research. She wasn't going to watch the show at all. And then our preview episode got her on board, and she even listened to the Slow Burn episode. So thank you, Susan, for really diving deep. I just wanted to read part of her email. She says, I was in my 30s then, so I had voted a few times in presidential elections for Democratic candidates who only took one state. We were losers for such a long time. You can't imagine what a pleasure it was to have an intelligent president on the Dem side. I knew even the first time that he was a cad and an unfaithful husband, I wasn't picking a husband. I was picking a president. Over time, I have realized that womanizer tends to equal predator. I wonder if there are any exceptions to that. It's all very fraught in a patriarchy, and I have no easy answers. And then uh, another interesting point in this. Uh, I have seen Linda Tripp in a new light. I actually see myself in her, where I am Tripp-like. I have worked in depressing office cubicles and been very distracted by holes in the ceiling or people eating or some kind of insane construction going on. Although I wouldn't attack a coworker like that. Tripp's desk mate seeds okay by me. I would probably get along with her. But I understand the desire for rules and for people to be protected by rules. I believe that having rules makes things better for everyone. That's what they are designed to do. Thankfully, there are many ways I'm not like Tripp, but I really understand her now. I really liked that read on Linda Tripp because I think we've talked a lot about how she is emerging as a fully formed human being on this show. And the the desire for rules, I felt like really connected with the Linda Tripp that we're seeing on the show. Do you see what I mean? I do. And I think that in this episode, um, you know, during the sort of sleepover sequence, um, we see Linda sort of humanized weirdly through the lens of Monica, where Monica is telling this story about when this happened to her before mm-hmm. with the drama guy. Um, and I think you see Linda realizing that this is not um, a, a sort of questioning her moral view on the whole situation. You know, she's friends yeah. with Monica, but I think she kind of has been judging her. But then she sees, oh, there's a pattern here. And Clinton was abusing the his power in the same way that this like tech, tech guy from her high school was. And like, and I somehow in a weird way, I feel like that kind of makes Linda a fuller character because we see her sort of realizing the whole dimension of this. Yeah, and it's like not what you know, it's not like we've had four episodes of Linda being like, "Oh, how can I betray my friend? Oh, but it's for the good of the country." Like that is part of her debate, but you're watching it play out on this much more nuanced level of how she thinks of herself and how she thinks of the president. And her response to Monica, like really sharing this heartbreaking story, is to call Lucy Ann Goldberg and say, "I can't do this anymore," but to still publicize the affair. You know, she doesn't do that extra step of just like actually protecting Monica, but continues on with this plot that she's already embarked on. Yeah. Um, and the emailer also referenced um, working for Democratic candidates who had only won one state. Um, and I think that might be a reference to McGovern, um, who ran or, against Nixon. What? Sorry. Wasn't it um, um, Walter Mondale who lost to Reagan? That maybe happened, too. But I know McGovern only won Massachusetts and uh, D.C. Um, in terms yeah. of electoral votes. And my dad used to have a bumper sticker said that, that said, don't blame me. I, I'm from Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> when the whole Watergate thing was happening, because my dad had worked on the McGovern campaign in some capacity. And um but interestingly, so did Lucy Ann Goldberg as oh. a spy. Whoa. For Nixon. She claimed to be uh, a journalist. Um she was part of the press corps. She was accredited, I suppose. 
Um, and then it kind of came out that she had been, um, and she claimed that Nixon himself had, uh, you know, approved of this idea that she would kind of be a mole within the McGovern campaign. Uh, th- that feels like a very Linda Tripp thing to do, right? To uh, the yeah. inflate the sense of your importance. So do we not know if he actually hired her? Is this something that uh, history hasn't decided yet? I, I guess. I mean, I'm, you know, just looking at Wikipedia, but like she's. I guess she was told that Nixon was behind it. So, like, I don't really yeah. know what the actual truth of it is. But Wheels but within think, wheels. You know, again, and again, like, that scene where Linda kind of realizes that Monica is stuck in a pattern, you also kind of see in this episode, and it's something that, like, um, it's cool to be able to talk to Margot Martindale about, is that, like, Linda herself is kind of falling victim to a more powerful person in some sense. I mean, Lucien is much better connected, despite Linda having worked um, in you know the executive branch for many years, mm-hmm. um, but Lucien kind of holds something over her and then gets her to do stuff that maybe Linda wouldn't have otherwise done. Have done. Yeah, I love looking at Lucien's Wikipedia page. That um, we've talked about the kind of Mrs. America as prelude to some of the themes that we're seeing play out in this, and that she uh, was anti ERA back in the early seventies. Like she founded a group against it. So she really, um, you know, if you want the full story of Lucien Goldberg, you got to go back and watch Mrs. America, a previous show covered on Still Watching mm-hmm. with Margot Martindale. Yeah, that's not as a, a very different figure as Bella <laughs> yeah. Abzug. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should do like a, a one woman show where she just plays both of them in, in conversation with each other. Right. I would watch that. Well, before we, you know, before we do your interview uh, with Margaret Martindale, I guess we can talk about Lucianne's role in this show. You know, she um, she's such a funny figure in the story where she just pops up. You basically only ever see her in her apartment in her dressing gown with her elaborate phone, uh, getting on the phone with Linda. Um, and she's kind of this consistent thing being like, Linda, you have to have the goods, you know, this telling her what the market really wants in terms of a tell all. And this is the episode where she really gets Linda to kind of go along with the plan. And I guess it's really presented as Linda wanting to protect Monica from Clinton and Lucianne just really preys on that. Like it's it's still it's still what Linda thinks is coming from a good place, even though she does this terrible thing. Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. There's obviously something else at play. I mean, Linda's kind of like um, desire for power and sort of prominence and, and all that. Um, but I think that what this show does, interestingly, with these conversations between Lucianne and Linda, they're mostly, you know, over the phone. And and it's maybe a minor detail, but like the, the, the cigarettes, you know, mm-hmm. and their sort of way of talking is that like, I, I wonder kind of in the show's psychology, if like Linda in some senses wonders if she can be like Lucianne someday, this uh-huh. kind of powerful figure who moves through, you know, sort of just has, you know, knows everybody and, and, and sort of wields a certain amount of influence. But I think that what's sort of tragic about this episode is that I don't know that Trip really realizes what Lucien's agenda is. You know, she goes right to the Paula Jones attorneys, you know, and and so Lucien is not just trying to get like the truth out there. She's trying to use that truth for a sort of I guess, you know, uh, a, you know, a, to check Bill Clinton's power and get him out of office or whatever. So so she's sort of manipulating Monica and being manipulated by Lucien. Yeah. Yeah. If we talked about before, you know, Hillary Clinton calling this a vast right wing conspiracy against her husband that she was right. And Lucianne is like at the center of that vast right wing conspiracy. And that doesn't seem like something Linda has completely cottoned on to yet. No, even though her politics probably better match Goldberg's and her ilk than Lewinsky's. But like, you know, 
Trip, at least in this characterization, seems to be somebody who is frustrated with the system, but also d- deeply devoted to it. And mm-hmm. Lucian is, yeah, and Lucian is just trying to like shake everything up, you know, because uh, she doesn't like the way the country's pointed. I guess. Yeah, I, I, in our episode last week when I talked to Kobe Smolders about playing Ann Coulter, she was saying that you know the key to playing this playing her was that she's like the only one having any fun. But I, I think Lucian Goldberg might be the other one having fun. Yeah. Like she yeah. is just so in it. For the chaos of it and, you know, whatever, whoever gets hurt in the process doesn't really seem to bother her at all. Um, and clearly it should more because, you know, if she had more of a conscience, she wouldn't have gotten London to get all those tapes. Uh, well, this seems like a good time to uh, listen to your interview, Richard, with Margot Martindale. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, I have this, the distinct pleasure now of being on the line with, uh, I don't know, one of acting's national, international treasures, who has done so much great work over the years and now is um, popping up, making quite an impression as Lucianne Goldberg uh, in an uh, impeachment. Uh, Margot Martindale, thank you for uh, doing speaking with me. Well, Richard, thank you for having me. I'm very delighted to be here. Yeah, you know, we're doing this kind of deep dive into the show, going episode by episode, and uh-huh. um, it's really great to have the opportunity to talk to people who worked on it and get their perspective. And, you know, speaking of perspective, something I'm maybe most curious about is um, back when this was all going on in 97, 98, were you paying attention to it? What What are your memories of this huge I, story? I remember most all of it, actually. And yeah. uh and I remember Lucianne Goldberg. She actually lives, lives in my neighborhood. So, um, and the impression I had of all of them and uh, some not so good and some uh, some I've changed my mind on <laughs> from doing this show. Yeah, well, well, can you speak to anything that you have changed your mind on, um, you know, that, that impeachment sort of helped you rethink? Well, um, I believe that, you know, the people that I thought were villains and gossips and uh, backstabbing, I think they were really standing up for their their beliefs. And uh, you have to look at it that way, really. Uh, Lucianne, who uh, is a very uh, passionate person, a very, I believe, right-wing person, but she believed that the Clintons needed to be brought down. And, uh, and 
Linda Tripp I've changed my mind on. I just absolutely care deeply about her and, and the and the terrible abuse she got from coming forward. It's it is and Monica Lewinsky uh, was uh, uh, you know um, well number one I just thought she was beautiful and number two I I thought that I didn't realize how young she was uh, you know she was at an incredibly young woman uh, thrown into an enormously powerful family I guess that's what you know lots of different ideas and thoughts but uh that's my first impression yeah i mean watching the show and 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 doing you know the sort of ancillary research that um you know kind of the show encourages you to do it it really humanizes almost i mean everyone really i mean you know in, in a way that like the media then wasn't going to show you and certainly memory kind of i mean it fails me when i you know i don't remember the particular details and and then kind of so relearning them it's like, yeah, Monica Lewinsky was so young and we made so I made so many mistakes that age that certainly weren't, <laughs> you know, didn't oh. become global, fun, you know, gossip. Truly. Um, it's yeah. terrifying. So how do you view Lucianne's role in this? I mean, because something that I talked about on, on this podcast with my co-host is that, you know, they're, they're, this show kind of delineates like everyone's kind of gotten an angle to some extent, even if they think they're doing it, you know, with the noblest intentions. And, and Lucien does seem to be goading Linda into this thing that would then become kind of a national, you know, scandal. Um, do, how do you see her character and, and her sort of moral stance and all this? Well, I, I, uh, I think she's a, a really, uh, uh, a, a businesswoman. She really, she's after the story. She's after the book. She's after the inside scoop. Uh, but that's what she, <coughs> excuse me, that's what she's done. She's, uh, I think she thinks she's doing the right thing. She has convinced herself she's doing the right thing. And, but she is the instigator. That's what I think. Yeah. None of this would have had happened, I don't think, if her little finger hadn't been in on it, pushing, urging. Um, and do we think? But, I, end- but actually, I like her. So you know, you you almost have to really kind of fall for the person you're playing. And I've kind of fallen for. Her. I think she's charming in a so incredibly strange way. And uh, I thought about her background i mean where she was born where she was raised where did her voice come from which was sort of an amalgamation of a bunch of different things um sort of she sort of seemed and she i guess you know she's with us so she seems to really like her voice yeah yeah she's a very singular figure you know i i went back and and watched some youtube clips uh clips on youtube of her speaking at various things and um and I, is that the kind of research you did to, to play yes her? i I, yeah. I watched one i watched uh the youtube of all the time everything i could find on her including her club act that she did or the uh where she sang and it was <laughs> it's really fun she's fun she's a fun person and she thinks of herself as a fun person. <laughs> <laughs> I 
she's she's still alive correct uh yes she is yeah. uh-huh. do you do you have any sense of is if she is she aware of the show has she seen oh, i have no it? idea okay. I, just, yeah. I had no 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 <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't um, want to know <laughs> <laughs> what do you think lucienne her ultimate end goal here is she she really is 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 bent on on getting the clintons out of office or or what is her i think she i think she has a, despises the clintons yes yeah I think that she thinks that they're, you know, not upstanding. Um, uh, and I think that uh, she also is is out to get a good book out of it. She really likes books. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, and selling them. Um, but no, I think it all came from her her despising the Clintons. Yeah, and and that's an, an, another interesting sort of moral. Uh, and that's question. you know, I'm saying that. Yeah. Did she despise the Clintons? I don't really know. My feeling is that she really thought she they, she thought they needed to be removed from office. Yeah, yeah, um, and and I think that that sentiment about that in particular has changed from from back then. It was you know, the vast right-wing conspiracy and why, are the, you know, the Republicans are trying to destroy this, you know, very popular Democratic presidency. And um, and now, though, of course, because we have had a, a huge reckoning with um, workplace politics, sexual politics and all that, how power is wielded in such insidious and often unseen and sort of unspoken about ways that we kind of do, I mean, I would hope a lot, most of us recognize that, like, what Clinton was doing with Monica Lewinsky and other women uh, was pretty villainous, you know, and 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 maybe you know it doesn't necessarily come to inform all of his politics, but but yeah, it's interesting. I guess what I'm trying to say is to sort of in at least one aspect, kind of side with Lucian and with Linda. You know, um, I guess the show finds a kind of moral common ground. Does that make sense? Uh huh. Uh huh. But you know, remember Clinton. I mean. I, as what I recall, Clinton wasn't impeached because of his uh, dalliances. He was impeached because because he lied. Right, right. Um, and um, and and you know, I guess no other president. Ha- I mean, for affairs or whatever we want to call them, uh, nobody has been impeached for that. <laughs> no, right. And I think that is something that Lucien, you know, reading about her and stuff, is is that lie she she's sort of just is like, I wanted the truth to be out there, you know, and, and maybe That's the what truth... she keeps saying. I wanted yeah. the truth to be out there. Yeah. I want the I want the Clintons to to be exposed. I want the Clintons to be exposed. That's really what she that's really what I believe she was about. Well, yeah. that's what she believed she was about. Let's just say that. Um, so a lot of your scenes in this episode are these phone calls with uh, Linda Tripp, played by Sarah Paulson. Um, and you guys have had did an in-person scene in an earlier episode. But I- I'm curious, like, you guys have such a, a potent connection in these scenes uh, in episode four. How do you do that when it's are, – are you somehow in the same room kind of almost having a dialogue with, with each other, or is it all remote? I was in New York, and she was in Los <laughs> Angeles. <laughs> Have the sometimes I was in Los Angeles, but usually we were not in the same room. No, were you on this? Were you actually on the phone together though, or was it just someone feeding you a line and you're no, we were you usually we were always on the phone together. 
Oh, okay, okay. So depending that... on how late it was getting in Los Angeles, <laughs> Sarah would let me off the hook. <laughs> and we're really good friends, so it really helps. Oh, yes, that is, I'm sure, a good help. Um, how did you, I don't know what your personal habits are, but how did you manage all the, the cigarettes? <laughs> I mean, it's just, there's, I feel like in this episode, we just see Lucien and, and, and Linda both, I guess, kind of light up about 10 cigarettes. <laughs> cigarettes. Well, I'm not a smoker, so right. <laughs> that's how I do is it but the herbal I, ones? I've had, or how... smoke, I've had to smoke a lot. Let's just say that. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's very convincing. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Sometimes you always worry. I mean, I try to, to, to do half and half inhaling and not inhaling. <laughs> right. It makes me sick. <laughs> you just have to hold it credibly. I think that's one of the Yes, that's really the trick. It, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I practice with pencils all the time. <laughs> <laughs> So you're playing a real life person. There's obviously a, a good deal of, you know, video of her, audio of her. Um, how do you, how do you as an actor approach that sort of task? Because you, what I love about your performance in this is that you get the sort of oddness of her voice, but it's about more than kind of mimicry. You're kind of capturing the spirit of someone. What is your approach? Honestly, to, that, to doing I, that? it was what I found. That's really what I finally landed on because, um, her voice is impossible to mimic. Uh, it's so unique and goes in so many different ways. I mean, sometimes I'd think I was Jiminy Glick, you know. Uh, uh, <laughs> but I uh, just tried to capture the fun of her listening to herself. And sometimes the way she drags one word to the next. Uh, and it was you know what? What I love about acting is uh, the fun and uh, becoming someone else other than me. So uh, that's what this was about. Just trying to start to feel like her a little bit. And once you feel a little bit like what you think the person is, it sort of starts to come out in a different kind of way from who you are. Yeah, you can just kind of get in that headspace and and you and kind can, of can yeah, and and yeah. once you can, you know. And I also listen to a lot of singers that I thought maybe like Rosemary Clooney. I mean, I, you know, there were things about her voice that interested me that I would hear it and then I would go and listen to that and say if that worked, you know. I I just, but I wasn't. I was just trying to create a a different person. And you did. I mean, you know, it's funny. We were talking on this on this show about how you also did another FX show, Mrs. America, back. In, well, I guess that was in the spring, um, and uh, playing a character from completely the other side of the of the the spectrum. I guess politically, you could say. Um, and yeah, and I think in both instances, like, you know, a lot of Margot disappears, and and I think that's the mark of of great performances. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I um, I am her. Uh, Bella was very completely different from my my where my voice sits mm-hmm. and where it comes from. So that was that was a real uh, long two months of of working on that voice. But Lucienne has it, it, her voice lies in the same timbre as mine, so that was uh, helpful. You know, uh, uh, it wasn't as much of a stretch. Right. Right. Now, are we going to see Lucienne pop up in future episodes, or maybe you're not allowed to say? I don't know. I don't know if I'm allowed to say, but <laughs> okay. yes. Well, we'll have to we'll have to wait <laughs> eagerly and hope. Um, but if not, we've had a great, uh, at least a glimpse of her. Um, and so it's so wonderful to be able to talk to you, Margot, uh, and get some thank insight you, behind Richard. the character. So I appreciate thank your you time. Thank you so much. And appreciate it. Thanks again.
We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. Okay, so now we can move through the episode, I think, um, because unlike with previous episodes, we're not really spending any time with Paula. Um, Bill is pretty tangential to the episode. It's really a Monica and Linda episode. It's called The Telephone Hour. Um, so we're, you know, watching a lot of these phone calls play out there. Um, they're super inane phone calls, which we'll get to later. Um, but it starts in August 1997, and Monica is in this meeting at the National Security Office with a woman named Marsha, who treats her pretty coldly and kind of is just basically like, uh, can you please explain to me why I'm here? Because it's Monica trying to get back into the White House. Was your read on this scene that, like, she knows that Monica had an affair with Clinton and that they're trying to keep her out of the White House, if at all possible? Yeah, because she says, I spoke with someone over there and they told me about, like, the conditions of your departure or whatever. <sighs> yeah, What a and, chilling phrase. And, and I think that, um, what is the name of Clinton's, like, you know, his secretary? Betty um, Curry. Betty Curry. Like, the way that she functions in this show is so interesting, too, because she clearly, she's a sympathetic figure in the show, even though mm-hmm. she is kind of running point for Clinton's kind of long bouts of, you know, pre- preying on women, basically. Sure. Um. But it's like, well, what was she supposed to do? Like, like she's kind to Monica, but she's also like not loyal to her. You know, her loyalties mm-hmm. lie elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting to see that sort of influence carried into this other, into the Marsha character. Like, like that that there was a lot of protection, if not around Clinton himself, though that too, like certainly around the office. And Lewinsky, mm-hmm. in this case, even though she's from her own well-connected, wealthy family, like. She is not, she is a threat to that minor as she might have seemed at the time, you know? And yeah. so she is not getting past that first wall because she's been kicked out of, of, of the castle town. And now, yeah. you know, they, no one will let her in again. Yeah. I mean, and you, like, you know, you see this in kind of all walks of life and all worlds where there is a powerful person who has other things to think about. And so there's a lot of structures put up to protect them and decisions that are made, like not necessarily with them. They're supposed to like keep their, you know, their eye on the ball. And with Bill Clinton, it had this kind of nefarious uh, aspect to it because of the way he was, you know, connecting his relationships with women. But you kind of get where they're all coming from. And they're like, listen, we're trying to run the country here. Like, we can't have you around here trying to resume your affair with the president. Uh, so stay at the Pentagon. Right. Well, and it's kind of like what, what our emailer said, Susan said, like, like, I knew that he was a cad. I mean, obviously, we know more about that. It was more than being cad. But like, but, you know, I wasn't picking a husband. I was picking a president. And yep. and I think that a lot of compartmentalization to that extent happens. And I think that that compartmentalization that you see in these kind of bureaucratic scenes, um, some of that is, yes, necessary. Well, obviously, not just in Washington politics, but in Hollywood, elsewhere, like that sort of thing has also been used 
that compartmentalization has been used to kind of never really address very, you know, bad and, and harmful behavior. Yeah. Um, so we go from the scene at the White House to Monica back at the Pentagon, and um, she's read the Newsweek article that Linda participated in that we saw. I'm sure you've episode. seen Newsweek. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen Newsweek. Man, this is like a prime Linda, like really high on her own supply. And she's got some great lines where she's like, his lawyer, Bob Bennett, defamed me on the world stage. I didn't ask for a front row ticket to his misbehavior. And then she leads on to say, I'm at war with the White House. And she's so she's right in this scene. She says, like, the White House is supposed to be like a piece of trash and they will do the same to you, Monica. And that's exactly what we're seeing play out with Monica. And she just doesn't realize it yet. Um, but man, is Linda kind of unbearable in this scene? Well, right. Because, like, if you would dispose of a piece of trash, you're not at war with that piece of trash. Disposed, <laughs> you know, like, it's a very like uh, every time I am in New York, I mean, I live in New York, but like uh, and I like give someone my phone number and. I have a Boston area code because that's where I'm from. <laughs> a lot of times people, it's, usually when I'm talking to someone over the phone, like ordering something, and if they know Boston, they're like, oh, Boston, huh? Like, do you do you get a lot of flack for that living in New York, you know, the Red Sox? And I'm like, only Boston cares about that. New York does not care. <laughs> it is a one-sided rivalry. And it, this kind of feels like that where, you know, Linda is is building it up into this, like, we are in some senses equal op opponents and we are clashing and it's like, no, like it's very yeah. like Don Draper. I don't even, I don't think anything I, about it. I was <laughs> just about to bring up Don Draper in the elevator. Yeah. Like he, like Linda is Ginsburg and Bill Clinton is Don Draper. It will never change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like what Kathleen um, Willie says in the, the first or second episode where Linda's like, the president will find out about this. She's like, the president doesn't know who you are, Linda. Yeah. Um, yeah. And at this point he does, you know, she has been brought up, uh, is connected to the Kathleen case and so he's kind of getting aware of her, but I don't think Linda knows that yet. I have been losing a little bit of track of like who knows what and who knows who knows what at this point in the in the story, um, which I think is kind of inevitable. Yeah, and you see in this episode different reactions to to learning it. You know, like um, uh, what's the reporter's name? Oh, Michael uh, Iskoff. Iskoff. Um, he's like, okay, so and you know, like mm -hmm. whereas you know, in Lucienne's eyes, because she's kind of understands the context or or is willing to see the the potential for it she's like immediately on the phone calling the other attorneys and and they're you know they're freaking out about it so it's just like i think a lot of people sort of knew in some vague sense and even a concrete way it's really just what they did with that information that kind of defined their sort of role in it yeah um, so after the scene with Monica, Linda comes back to her chair and there's basically this list of people who connect who are connected with the Clintons who have let, met violent ends of Vince Foster's names on there. And, you know, Linda has just been talking about Vince Foster, how she was the last person to saw him alive. Um, and she's, I think, understandably pretty freaked out about it and is like, you know, haranguing everyone in the cubicle next to her about who left it. Uh, and we don't know who left it and we don't know if this really happened. And also, if even if Linda said it happened, it's kind of hard to know. But I mean, my sense of this is included just to get why. Linda's not only feeling kind of self-righteous about the Clintons, but but paranoid and kind of worried for herself. But taking a, it seems kind of a pleasure in that paranoia. Like, yes. oh, I really am caught in this web of espionage and intrigue. I'm at the center of this thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think there's like, she's like, who's, you know, she's she's visibly upset about this this thing on her desk. But like, I, I just kind of, maybe it's just Paulson's performance or whatever, but I just detect also a thrill, you know? Yeah. Um. So then she kind of, like, we get home, like, this is the part of, this episode has a lot of Linda and Monica getting home from work and just calling each other on the phone a ton. And I, like, you were around in the late 90s, you were using up the landline all the time. Like, these aimless phone calls that they have, like, varying levels of aimless, but they felt very familiar to me. Just like, hey, what are you doing? 
Oh, you're making oh. dinner? Oh, I'm making dinner too. <laughs> Let's stay on the phone for the next half an hour. I, I mean, considering how much I loathe talking on the phone now, it's crazy <laughs> that every night during high school, I would like call my three best friends and we'd mm-hmm. each talk for like an hour, you know, mm-hmm. like each conversation. Sometimes I would talk on the phone while watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer with someone. Like, like it was just like, I, we were just on the phone all the time. Yeah. Uh, and you had to be at home for it, you know? So yeah. I think there's a really funny like time capsule um nature to to these scenes because it's just like it's not you know walking and talking de- while they're doing something you know out in the world it's always just in that sort of comfort of home and I think that kind of adds to that feeling of like well I can say anything because it's it's this is a very protected sort of safe mm, environment mm-hmm. you know Yeah I didn't think about that but yeah it's like Monica like in her gym clothes doing her laundry like the most casual Circumstance in which to have a conversation with Linda and why she feels uh, so comfortable with it. So we got, um, you know, this call with Monica where, you know, it's not just her complaining about her relationship with Bill, which she's been doing forever, but about the job situation. You know, she says Bill said he would secure a job for me months ago. She means like going back into the White House. Um, but this is what gets Linda frustrated enough that she calls Lucy Ann back and is just basically like, we need to stop this. Like, why do you? Why does it feel like to you watching this that, that this is kind of the fulcrum moment where Linda puts the the terrible plan into motion? I mean, it's complicated. Obviously, she has her big blow up at Monica, like just you know, bother your mother about this. I don't want to hear yeah. it anymore. After she's been taping at that point, right? And and I I understand that frustration that that's been mounting because like, um, you know, we've all had a friend or a loved one who like is going through something and oftentimes it's with, you know, relationship stuff. And you just feel like we are in a washing machine. We are just churning and churning and churning over the same mm. thing. You have to break the cycle out of my frustration and sort of almost boredom with it. But uh-huh. also the, further complicating the, Linda's character, there's a concern there, you know, yep. and maybe only a radical thing will break this cycle that she also has now heard has happened before again with the drama teacher. Like mm-hmm. uh, there is that that feeling of like I need to like slap you awake and alert yep. and and obviously it had catastrophic consequences for Lewinsky um but I can understand at least in the show's portrait of it why Linda could both be kind of selfish and 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 uh you know opportunistic about it but also think that she's operating out of like deep concern for her friend yeah. Um, I want to note a couple details from this uh, um, early scene with Linda on the phone, because um, I, I do think the like attention to both character details and period details has been really great on the show. Um, she's watching the TV news. and They're talking about photos of Princess Diana on a yacht with uh, mm-hmm. Tony Al-Fayed, because this is August 1997, so weeks before Princess Diana dies. Um, uh, Linda ashing into her baked potato while she's on the phone with Monica yep. is so gross and so vivid at the same time. Uh, and then her kids are listening to Return of the Mac. When she comes home with the groceries, that's all. Just... <laughs> yeah. I, I love the daughter saying, no one can call me anymore. Like, because they have one phone line or whatever. Yeah, we need another like, line. Yeah. And just like, you know, that there that there was other life happening outside of this. I think the show is good at, like, giving us little moments to remind us that, like, Linda has a child. And, and you know, they're, the, you know like, um, m- the mentions of, of Monica's family in this and her mother and, like, talking to her mother about this other guy and whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, that like these people have lives outside of this, but they're so isolated in this event that it it often feels like they're the only people in the world other than. Yeah. Portland. And Monica's isolation is so intense from this time. You know, she just talks about how she like stays at home to make wait, wait for him to call. Like, she doesn't make any friends. She's not dating. You know, she's telling too many people about this affair with the president, but not that many people. So her just like 
hermetic bubble thing in the Watergate where like she's probably the youngest person in the entire building. Um, it's very you feel so you feel for her in that isolation. Okay, so we have a phone call with Monica, then Linda calls Lucianne to basically be like, I'm concerned about her. I know someone who's having an affair with her. Um, you know, Lucianne says, I know you're more accustomed to secretarial tasks, but this is your shot at the big leagues, which like proves she really just knows what makes Linda tick. Um, and then there's that great button at the end of that scene where Lucianne just pulls the tape out of the tape. She's been taping their call without saying anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just, I like that it's not like she like carefully places it in some case. She just tosses no. it in the nightstand yeah. drawer. Yeah. Um, how many yeah. tapes does this woman have? Um, and then from there, Monica shows up. It's a rainy night. She shows up at the White House basically uninvited, which is just crazy. Like, it it totally fits with what we know, but how Monica was behaving. But, like, what a crazy thing to do. And um, Bill is watching G.I. Jane with Chelsea. Talk about your other <laughs> period details. Um, and this is a great scene with Betty, too, that you were saying, Richard, that she's this sympathetic figure. Like, she's really trying to be nice to Monica, but, like, she has a job. And, like, in this scene, like... You don't you're not even mad that she's keeping Monica's it's like, yeah, send her home like she's she does not need to be here right now. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and Clinton has that line when, you know, when he's scolding Monica for having, you know, been short with Betty on the phone mm-hmm. where he's like, she didn't come out of the Jim Crow South. Yeah. To like deal, deal with this kind of stuff, you know, and like. Obviously, there's an appreciation for how Betty Curry came up in the world and like, you know, overcame, you know, an impossible sort of upbringing. Um, uh, but you kind of also feel like Clinton is just kind of like using that, that story, you know, like, like, like it's just, this, this show is so good at, at depicting, um, how people, I mean, let's say specifically for this, for this purpose, like politics, like every little thing can be used as leverage and can be sort of bent toward your narrative and, and your, you know, continued success Mm -hmm. and whatever. And like, here he is just kind of reducing this woman's like huge life story into a talking point to scold the woman who he had been like, yeah, you know, secretly preying upon or whatever, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I do like that later on, uh, Monica's like, yeah, I got to apologize to Betty for that. It's yes. like, yeah, man, yeah. you really, <laughs> you messed up there big time. Um, so Monica leaves that interaction, uh, calls Linda sobbing on a payphone. That's kind of this traumatic monologue from Beanie Feldstein, which I still think she's doing really great work on this um and that is when um linda really says all right lucianne i'm going to tape the calls and um lucianne to her credit warns linda that they will try to destroy monica and linda like how dilute how much do you think she really believes what she says like sure they can do that to cocktail waitresses and trailer people but monica is different do you think she buys that when she says that i don't know i think people tell themselves you know they're like things to, to to kind of convince them that their choice is right you know and like and linda even says because lucian says this too she's like you know you're gonna lose her as a friend yeah and linda's like i've made peace with that or something you know whatever and it's like but you haven't really no you know? and and the sleepover scene kind of confirms that and then you know later when linda's on the phone and starts crying you know i mean monica doesn't know that she's crying like i i think there is this mounting thing of like oh wait this is really gonna screw her over and but I can't stop it now. Yeah. You know, yeah. the thing is rolling. I mean, I think it's not an accident, obviously, that this episode ends on a view of Hillary asleep and it's like, well, she's about to wake up, you know, and like, and, <laughs> and, and, and like this, this is now like the, the bottle, you know, the bell cannot be unrung. And, mm-hmm. and I think Linda realizing that and then going forward is just going to, as much as she can, have to justify everything to sustain herself, you know, yeah. even if she actually, this is none, none of what, what happens is, is what she wanted to happen. 
even to the point where she, you know, she's like, well, if they call me as a subpoena, I have to testify. Monica won't know. It's like, you really think she's not going to like she's so convinced that she can, like, keep her hands clean in all of this. And we all know extremely well that that's not possible. Well, exactly. So she gets served the subpoena. And then we see um, Clinton's lawyer be like, oh, we have the witness list. Yeah. For the poli- So it's like, OK, so Linda's name is on that. So now. The administration, I mean, she Trip is already sort of on their radar, but now she really is, you know, yeah. and like, yeah, exactly. Like she's, I mean, Trip is, is, is like, uh, signing Lewinsky's kind of death notice, but her own too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But she thinks it's her ticket to, um, you know, whistleblower glory, basically. Right. Um. So. Going back into the when she goes to get the tape, she goes into Radio Shack. She's literally wearing a trench coat and sunglasses. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like Wilford Brimley in the firm sunglasses, like <laughs> full blown. Uh, and the the production design of that Radio Shack is completely perfect. I remember all of that signage and the mm-hmm. walls, and like it all feels great. Um, and then they have this like totally weird conversation where she's like, "Who do you miss? Remind me. When did you see him last?" And it's you. I mean. I so I've listened to some of the Lewinsky trip tapes and they do really sound as like casual and somewhat inane as we're hearing here. I couldn't find if that one was a real call, but it wouldn't surprise me um, because as far as I know, like the majority of all the tapes went public. Um, But Monica falls for it. Poor thing. You just uh, you feel for her. Yeah. And I do think that like the show does a good job of we are obviously on Monica's side and deeply sympathetic to what she's going through already and what she's about to go through. Um, But I think they do also show that, you know, she was young and maybe a little spoiled and self-involved. And a part of it is like, well, she wouldn't notice Linda's weird questioning because she's not really listening to Linda. Mm -hmm. You know, she's just kind of barreling through as young people do wants to talk about herself go you know and use linda this kind of sad sack older person like as her sounding board and um confidant but like not really reciprocating in any way and i i kind of think in this show's um portraiture like that's also something that's motivating linda a little bit is Mm -hmm. that she's sick of this kind of blithe youngster like just breezing through and not really being considerate of who linda is and and what her concerns might be uh-huh yeah like sort of her tough love in the uh yeah. <laughs> the worst way possible um so we get michael Escoff back in the story i um i still love this performance as this like reporter who's just like what what do you want me here for what <laughs> yeah. what's going on and they've like met in like lucianne's safe house which i think she says is her son's apartment um and like you said earlier like he's basically like this isn't a real story. I can't listen to this tape. He says, taping without my without consent violates my journalistic principles. And even though I agree with him, he sounds like such a dweeb when he says that. It's like, come on, dude. Yeah. This, is, al- like, this is gold. <laughs> he also says, like, I'm a serious journalist. It's like the minute you said that, <laughs> it's like calling yourself classy. You know, it's like, uh, no. Um, he kind of sets in motion. And the big next part of this, you know, like Linda doing the tapes is a huge element. And then he says there there's no quick pro quo, basically, like him having an affair uh, you know, what was seen as a consensual affair at the time, you kind of brought that more into question in the years since. Um, and he says quid pro quo in a way that and you, you can kind of see the light bulb go off on Linda's head. Um, as far as I know, like, it's a little murky how how we get to the point where Monica is meeting with Vernon Jordan. Like he, his version of the story is that Betty Curry called him, basically asked him to meet with Monica. And he, you know, sets her up as we see with an interview at Revlon. Um, but it makes sense to me that the way that they're putting it here, that like it would it would come from Linda kind of rolling it up 
rolling it up to Monica, even if that's not necessarily the historical record. Does it does it track for you? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think that I, I'm, I'm curious what you think, but like, you know, Lin, Linda blows up. She's like, you, you've been offered a job to work at the UN, essentially. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that, that, like, yeah, that comes up later. Yeah. But like, but like, you know, there's this kind of thing of like, wait, so she this kind of dopey kid. Did, you know, had this affair with the president. And now she's like using that to like get cool jobs in New York. And like, I'm just <laughs> stuck at this Pentagon job that I hate. Like, like, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think there is something like, um, I think, I don't know, Linda's partly like, no, no, I'm going to stop that trajectory. You know, like, I, mm-hmm. I, like, I, I can't just let this, like, her just like kind of in, in her eyes, like fail up, I guess. Yeah. Well, this is that same call where she's saying that she needs to apologize to Betty. And she just sounds like such a brat talking about the Bill Richardson job. She's like, I don't want to work at the UN. I want to work at Revlon. What happened to Revlon? And like, you get why Linda is annoyed. And I was honestly impressed, you know, knowing that Monica is involved in making it this show and that she had kind of fought for some of the less flattering parts of the story to be included. Like, I, that cannot be easy to like depict no. your 22 year old self doing that. But it, it makes me believe that it's true that that's how she was behaving. I, I this summer I was complaining to a good friend who is in our industry um, about like some of the, the I went to the Cannes Film Festival and having some of the protocol I had to do before I left and like oh I don't know it's you know, all these tests when I'm there it's not really worth it and he was just like shut up <laughs> you're going to Cannes just stop it like but you get so in your head about your problems that like you forget like to, to take a step back and have some perspective I mean it's hard to do that in the moment but like clearly Monica is not you know, at least when it comes to these jobs, it's not really like it, you know, and Linda, you know, is offering good counsel. She's like, just, it's a start. It'll get you out. It'll get you to New York. Like, just think of it that way. But that's not how Monica sees things, you know? Yep. Um, Well, let's talk about Vernon Jordan, who enters the story at this point, played by Blair Underwood. Um, He's a really fascinating figure who I now want to, you know, read a biography of basically. And he died uh, this year in in March. Um, so he was a civil rights lawyer in the 60s. He helped uh, desegregate the University of Georgia. He worked for the NAACP, the National Urban League. Um, and as he says in character in this episode, like he met Bill Clinton when he was pretty young in his political career. And, um, you know, they became really close friends. He would, the New York Times called him the consoler in chief to the president. You know, he was like there for him when Vince Foster died. Um, and he was just a connector. Like he mm-hmm. would set tons of people up with jobs. There's a whole Washington Post story from, you know, after all this comes public about how much he would help people and how the, the help he gives Monica Lewinsky is um, maybe more so than he would have given other people. Um, but yeah, he's this really interesting figure. I think Blair Underwood is great casting for him. Like yeah. you kind of get him as someone who can just like walk into any room and shake a hundred hands and come out with 10 jobs. Oh, fully, fully. And you know, that's the second point in this episode, you know, earlier in the scene with Marsha, um, she's like, Oh yeah, we've known each other since we were in high school, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and Vernon Jordan's now like, Oh yeah, we, we kind of came up together. We've known each other a long time. Um, you see that that's part of this security apparatus around the president. It's not yes. just like I've hired people to be loyal to me. It's like, no, I've known these people for decades and yes. that adds this extra layer of protection. Yeah. Um, and like clearly Vernon Jordan is doing a, a good, good job of that. Like the, you know, the extent to which he gets involved in the later impeachment trial, like, you know, she tells him, as we're going to see later, that she'd not have a relationship with the president. Like he gave a recommendation. He drives her to meet with a lawyer, which like comes into question. But like either he knows the president well enough to kind of know what's being unspoken here or, you know, doesn't have anything on the record. And he is, you know, from from this meeting, like 
he's helping her in a way that's pretty above board. Like she was a White House intern. The president gave her a recommendation. He can get her an entry level job at Revlon. Like you don't see you don't see a problem emerging from it yet. Although you also see him slap her on the ass as she's walking into the elevator, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty interesting thing to include. Did that color your uh, look at Vernon Jordan here? Yeah, I don't know if that actually did that actually happen. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, um, we need but, you back, Joanna. <laughs> yeah, I know, Joanna. Research, please. Um, but no, um, we will look into that and have an answer next week. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it it felt a little on the nose. But if it actually happened, well, then I, it's still on the nose. But it's like truth, you know. Um, yeah, and it but, seems like it seems speaking to the larger culture of DC at the time, perhaps. Oh, absolutely, and also just like an, an another reminder and. Monica is seeing these signs to some extent, but maybe not heeding them where it's like this guy, like, like most of these people are, are very much on Clinton's side and not yours, you know? Yeah. And, and, and are, are sort of, they, you know, tacitly or not endorse his behavior, you know, like they, they protect it. They excuse it, whatever, you know, they, they do it themselves, you know, whatever. Like, and, and I, I think that that sort of, that wide-eyed kid realizing the sinister ways that a lot of the sort of adult and largely, you know, male world works, um, you know, it's it's tragic, you know. She yeah. or she is being like, oh, it's so nice to meet a decent person, whatever, like, you know, and then that little thing happens that just a little reminder of, like, uh, you know, I hold all of the cards, kid, you know. Yeah. Yeah, the power that she does, you know, because she's like a privileged girl from Beverly Hills. She's in many ways used to a lot of doors opening for her. Right. Um, but she is in the situation where you kind of walk into every room being like, what What does this person want? What benefits them? Like, are do they have a reason to stick their neck out for me? Um, and I guess Vernon Jordan does stick his neck out for her and, you know, setting her up with a job. But um, we know where his loyalties are very specifically. Um, so we get this montage of Linda chain smoking and making her taste with Monica, uh, just kind of over and over again. Um, they have, I love some little de- details of this conversation. Like they talk about the bananas and milk diet, which Ugh. sounds truly awful. Yeah. Um, and then Monica speculates that he's having an affair with Barbara Streisand, which I, I don't think I'd ever heard that specific rumor, but of course it makes sense because she was close friends with the Clintons. Uh, and she has, she says something very mean about how Barbara Streisand doesn't get prettier as she gets older, which is. <laughs> way harsh <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah i mean i i, I it just adds a sort of the, the to that air of tragedy you know that they are able to have these very quotidian conversations about diets and celebrity gossip and whatnot yeah um all the while more and more this idle chat is being you know or is on its way to being used um to essentially destroy this girl's life you know for yep. the next two decades yeah so then uh, Linda blows up at our, uh, you know, take your delirium and your incessant phone calls in this whole sick situation and foist it on somebody else. Um, and then basically calls to apologize. And uh, Monica invites her over and shows Linda the blue dress, which I uh, didn't realize, didn't know if we were going to see fully. But we, we we do get the very visual depiction of why that became such a focal point. And there's a great thing where Linda says, like, are you saving it? Yeah. And Monica's like, ew, no, no, I just haven't gotten to do my dry cleaning. I haven't dry cleaned any of those things. And, uh, you know, uh, what do you get? I don't do your dry cleaning every day. And it's like, this is a kid in her early 20s. Like, like they're mess. You know, she's messy. She's sort of like uh-huh. careless about, you know, whatever her her items or, you know, it's just it, it felt very human um as someone who has a pile of dry cleaning I need to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, God, dry cleaning. What a concept. 
Um, it also just makes you feel like, you know, she's in her closet with her friend and like looking at her dirty clothes and knowing that like we all know about the blue dress and that it got like tested is just so mm-hmm. sad to think about that violation of privacy um, by the time that that happened. Well, everything she touches essentially now is like evidence, you know, and and, yeah. and, and, and like every aspect of her life, all of the, you know, the sort of quotidian stuff about diets and all that. It's like, that's all going to become a matter of public record. Like, mm-hmm. it's just like, you know, I, we, we talked on the first episode or maybe it was the preview episode for this season about how like this is obviously a story of this famous scandal and it's many implications for people in the workplace and whatever but it's also like the dawn of the internet age and here is this kind of like avatar of all of that it's like everything about you is about to be public and like Mm -hmm. every little sort of detail and it's just so sad to see her so unaware of that uh with this you know huge wave rushing at her yep um so we get this slumber party situation basically and monica tells linda the story of this relationship with this teacher uh named andy who played her the original cast recording of lay miz in his car um, which Richard, I feel like as a theater kid in high school, we both kind of get why that would be appealing, even though it sounds horrible now. And she's like, and he read the book or read the novel and he told, said what was different in it. And it's like, well, I mean, a lot of people have read <sighs> Victor Hugo. It's not that remarkable. But as a kid, of course, you would be like, oh, yeah, you know. yeah, he like gets her. You know, she yeah. talks about how competitive the uh, drama club was at her high school, which, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Beanie Feldstein is like a L.A. Uh, drama kid. I, she knows from experience about that. Um, and, you know, she talks about losing her virginity at camp when she was 14, even though she said no, which is just like this horrible detail. Um, but for me, this monologue, you know, I think for a lot of this episode or a lot of the series you watch, Monica, you're just like, why are you letting this happen? Like, I get that you have a crush on the president, but like, oh, my God, you were putting up with so much. Um, and this really clarified that, that like her model of relationships comes from this guy who treated her basically the same way and kind of poisoned the well for her in terms of seeking out suitable romantic partners for, you know, the rest of her short life up to this point. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, we, I probably all of us have experienced it to some extent. It's like something from your past, usually in those formative years that you're like, well, that was a bad experience. And yet you keep kind of recreating it, you know, uh, like they're like the first guy I ever had, like a serious and sort of public crush on, like he was not into me, but, um, in high school, like, well into my 20s and then 30s i was like i would find myself repeating that behavior you know monica says it she's like Mm. every time i liked someone they they didn't like me back it was they liked a friend of mine or whatever and it's like you kind of even though you you don't like that experience you sort of end up seeking it out anyway yeah and i think you know again like that 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 further humanizes monica in linda's eyes and she's realizing like oh god like i i guess i'm helping or I can tell myself I am, but at the same time, like, is a huge public shaming really the way to, like, help this person? And and obviously it wasn't, but yeah, it, she, you can't, can't stop it now, you know? She can't get there. Yeah, and, like, you, you, I mean, again, like, the way the show, like, tackles diet culture and the way that Monica and Linda, Linda both think about their bodies, like, and what Monica has kind of convinced herself that she deserves and what society has convinced her that she deserves is why she continues putting up with this, which is, like, another added sadly you know she has linda come over and raid her fat closet which is a uh certainly a phrase i have heard other people use before probably have used myself so mm-hmm. it's all tied up in this horrible culture that raised us and that we have to extricate ourselves from 
Um, so after the summer party, the, you know, the episode kind of opens up. We get back to some of the other players in the story. Uh, Linda sees Paula Jones on TV while she's on the phone with Lucianne. Um, I, I have to assume that's dramatic license that she was like, oh, Paula Jones is on my television. She'll help us. Right. Um, but that's, you know, basically how we get there. Lucianne kind of immediately calls uh, the elves, including George Conway, to tell them about Linda and Monica. And um, this guy walks in the room. It's like he very confidently says her name is Lewiski, Monica Lewiski, which is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like funny. Yeah. Um, and then Monica gets her job offer at Revlon and basically immediately puts in her notice. Um, Linda gets her subpoena. Oh, Linda, she's opening a um, birthday present for Monica right before she gets a subpoena. It's this feather bookmark. Is there a significance to that or is it just like a pretty bookmark? It, like the close up lingered long enough that made me wonder. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Was. I don't know. If anyone knows, email us still watching yeah. at gmail.com. Yeah, there you go. It's a, it's a very lovely present. Seems like something that Linda would like. Um, so Linda gets her subpoena and then Bob Bennett brings uh, Bill the witness list in uh, in his office. Basically, I think it's the first time we've seen Bill not like yelling at Monica on the phone in this episode. Um, and he offers to settle. And Bill basically says, Bill says, Bob, do you think I'm fucking crazy? Uh, and then he walks away and goes and sits in his bedroom with Hillary's asleep. It's mm-hmm. are what we're supposed to think. Like, so the reason he said it in an earlier episode, like, I can't settle because hillary won't let me and like is this are we just tying it back to like her being the reason he wouldn't settle this case is is it that simple no i think it's more about like settling his admission you know Uh or something and like you know i think he really thinks he can handle it because i at this point he sort of thinks he's handled monica you know Yeah, and, yeah, he had that last phone call with her after he yelled at her where he was just like yeah i'll help you do whatever and he's so nice because he now Mm -hmm. thinks that like it's about to go away. She's about to go to New York, you know, so yep. he, he, there's nothing to lose if he's kind now, you know? Yeah. Um, And he's going to string her along just that little bit extra, you know? So I think, I think there probably is some component that's like related to Hillary, but I think it's also just about arrogance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, like last week we talked more about the Trump illusions in the future in this, but I feel like we have seen that before in, you know, men who have power who just like cannot admit fault. Like if they admit fault, then the whole thing comes crashing down. So he just has to barrel ahead. And, um, you know, ruin some lives in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, it is funny if you're, uh, you know, watching along to this point and you see, uh, I guess that's Edie Falco sleeping in that bed. Maybe yeah. it's not. Maybe maybe they yeah. put away on somebody else. But there is this like, it's like a shell game. They're being like, Edie Falco's here, we promise. But oh, no, she's gone. She's not in this episode. So uh, the Edie watch continues for another week, I guess. I've I've got to assume that she's going to have some big standalone episode, right? Yeah, I mean, she's not in this show for no reason. You know, she did the big interview with the New York Times um, with the other women in the show about how this is about the the, the women of the Clinton um, impeachment scandal. Um, we haven't seen all the episodes yet, so, you know, we're still hoping for more. I, there is, I do know that there is more coming for her later in the season. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing about, the thing that I think is making the show work is that you're focusing on Monica and Linda, who are very well-known figures, but they're not the Clintons. You know, there's not so much story and knowledge about them already. So you can kind of imagine things. And I think with Bill and Hillary, it gets a lot trickier really fast. So yeah. they, I think they've been yeah. kind of smart to to hold off on it to some extent. Um. Well, Richard, any other thoughts on what we get here? Do you do you feel good about where the story's taking us? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think I think one of the fun things about the American Crime Story series is seeing the stuff you would have you know you didn't know because it was behind closed doors and so we've got yeah. a lot of that you know these four episodes but the an, another part of the fun is seeing stuff we do know or dimly remember kind of reenacted and so i'm i'm curious about that next process that the show is going to cover and and mm-hmm. you know we we're only it's nine episodes right 
Ten. Ten. So, okay, we're not even at the middle. So um, I'm really curious to see how things unfold and how much the world expands or contracts and, you know, who kind of takes center stage. Because, like, obviously Linda's going to be very involved in this, but eventually that the story spins away from her, too, you know? Yeah. Um, and and I think I think that's where you're going to get Falco kind of in those ba- the back few episodes. Yeah, just wait for uh, for Matt Drudge to re-enter the fray. We got a uh, we got such like a colorful introduction to him last week, but he's you know he's coming back. The historical record doesn't lie. Yep. Um. Well, in the meantime, that does it for this week's show. Uh, you can find us at vanityfair.com. You can um read Richard's interview with Margaret Martindale there. Um. And uh, Richard, where else can people find you? Uh, tweeting at Rylaws and um, just wandering around Manhattan looking for a Radio Shack. Because that this episode made me miss it. It's true. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at uh, Katie Rich, K-E-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H, and I'll be uh, ashing into a baked potato. There you go. <laughs> this episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.